So we're standing in the culprit right here. This is the guy. <clears throat> That's cheatgrass. Cheatgrass growing. And it's a it's a really pretty remarkable plant, I think. Um, I've seen it grow in I've seen it grow in rocks where maybe a teaspoon of dirt had collected, a little sediment, you know. That much rock that much dirt will grow a cheatgrass plant. It'll grow uh, you know, in driveways, it'll grow in cracks in asphalt, it'll grow about anywhere. You just heard the voice of John Griggs, a public lands rancher in northern Nevada. When you have a when you have a cheatgrass monoculture and it's thick, you throw a spark to it or a match and it'll woof like gasoline. Woof! And away it goes and it burns hot and, and fast. Having cheatgrass on the landscape doubles the risk of wildfire. Jeremy Maestas is a sagebrush ecosystem specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, a federal government agency tasked with providing ranchers and farmers with support and assistance in implementing conservation measures. Cheatgrass isn't the only invasive annual grass on the landscape, but it's by far the most pervasive. It already occurs in all 50 states in the U.S., it's most problematic in the Intermountain West, and it creates what we call a negative wildfire feedback loop. More cheatgrass equals more fire, more fire equals more cheatgrass. And it just spirals and spirals with each fire, gets worse, kills more native plants, and eventually in the worst of situations, which we do have in the Snake River Plain of Idaho, where they've simply gone to being cheatgrass-dominated annual grasslands, and those areas burn every few years, or at least have the potential to. The Snake River Plain, which includes the area that makes up the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, wasn't always dominated by cheatgrass, however, as Mike Cokert explains. Prior to the early 1980s, that area basically didn't burn. In 1981, I can remember well, I was coming back from Pinedale, stopped to check in at the office and I got a hold of Karen and she told me that 30,000 acres burnt over the weekend. This just baffled everybody and that started a five, six year period where it was exceptional moisture in the winter and these, this area just burnt right and left. High precipitation rates in the winter and early spring provide cheatgrass with a boost in growth. But the invasive grasses die off during the dry desert summer, providing extra fuel for shrubland wildfires. And by the time the smoke cleared, about half the shrub habitat was gone. When I came here, the area was either winter fat, sagebrush, or shad scale. And there were a few pieces of grassland. That's the voice of longtime raptor biologist Karen Steenhoff. It is hard to see the degradation. And even when people say, oh, this is beautiful, and I think, you should have seen it 40 years ago. It really was. <laughs> You're listening to Common Land, a podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise, 
with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm Matt Podolsky. Common Land tells the stories behind protected areas, and in Season 1, we are exploring a truly unique patch of federally protected public land, the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, an unparalleled raptor sanctuary. You know, it was a, it was a an ocean of sagebrush. I enjoyed camping in among it, and it was cold and windy, but you could hide in the in the shelter of the sagebrush and read a book. That's the voice of Roger Rosentreter, who was hired by the BLM as a seasonal botanist in 1978. Roger soon went on to become the BLM's state botanist for Idaho, putting him on the front lines of the fight against the growing spread of cheatgrass. Cheatgrass was first identified in southwest Idaho in 1900, yet it didn't immediately present itself as a threat to the sagebrush ecosystem. Wheat farmers, winter wheat farmers, bought wheat from Europe, sowed the seed. Some of the seed turned out to be cheatgrass. Therefore, the name, they were cheated out of their crops. And those cheated farmers got that seed from specific parts of Europe, very different, distant parts. It wasn't that bad at first. Only after the cheatgrass, different introductions started to hybridize, and we got hybrid cheatgrass, that the cheatgrass became more aggressive. And by the early 1980s, the spread of hybridized strains of cheatgrass specifically adapted to the Snake River Plain created just the right conditions for a series of large wildfires. And these fires created new opportunities for the spread of hybridized cheatgrass, as well as other invasives. Because as we had these fires, we pulled in firefighters from other regions. They come with these big trucks and drive all over in the desert. They brought cheatgrass seed. Everyone sits there and thinks, oh, big deal, there's already cheatgrass. But what's happened is cheatgrass is hybridizing, becoming more aggressive. It's not the same critter that our, our parents had to deal with. A BSU faculty's proven this very well, a guy named Steve Novak. He did these detailed studies, looked at the genomes of cheatgrass in parts of Europe, and he documented where different cheatgrass came from that was introduced into the U.S. You know, that's what's happening is we're a global situation and with our, our rapid, you know, transport people, uh, and you, you see it with off-road vehicles the most. One of the most common places to see new weeds in Idaho is over by St. Anthony Sand Dunes. These people who haul off-road vehicles on trailers to play in the sand dunes there, and on the edges of the parking lot is like a free-for-all for new weeds. And But we're doing it, every recreationalist can do that with their own socks. I'd rather burn my socks and 
then uh, go to another, like when, because I travel a lot for work, I don't want my cheatgrass seed from Boise to infect cheatgrass in uh, Vernal, Utah. Some people I know actually, you know, wet their socks, let them germinate. <laughs> Microwave them inside a container to kill them. You know, that's what, the, that's what these weird biologists do. Hybridization isn't the only factor influencing the spread of cheatgrass, however, as Jeremy Maestas explains. We are going through a period of climate that is very favorable for cheatgrass. What that means for us is we better recognize it and, and figure out how we're going to live in that environment. Living in this environment that has been altered by climate change means living with cheatgrass. And living with cheatgrass means living with wildfire as rancher John Griggs explains. If you're a rancher in this part of the world, you're also a volunteer firefighter almost by default. We'll get, you know, a couple hundred lightning strikes, and out of that, you know, 40 or 50 starts, and, and the professionals get overwhelmed quickly. The conditions that the boys get to deal with when this is burning, it's 105. It doesn't cool off at night. The dust is so thick in the haze you can't see. That's Sam Morey, a rancher and the president of the Nevada Cattlemen's Association. What these guys go through on the fires is appreciated by the industry, appreciated by ranchers. There's a lot of tense times, but to paint a picture for you what it's like, and we've been on lots of them, 40-foot flame links and nothing you can do about it, and you're trying to hike up, you can see the burn scar up that mountain trying to put it out. Cheatgrass is also partly responsible for what we are seeing in terms of megafires. And by megafires, I'm talking about fires that are over 100,000 acres in size. Almost unheard of 20, 30 years ago. Now it's not surprising to have a few every year around the West. The spread of invasive hybridized cheatgrass, driven in part by climate change, has transformed the shrubland habitats of the Great Basin and all of the Intermountain West, including the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. So how has this transformation affected birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon? We found with, with ground squirrels, you could burn an area and you have a lot of cheatgrass, is that in good moisture years, those cheatgrass areas produce a lot of ground squirrels. In drought years, zippo. Mike Coker has been studying raptors in the Snake River Canyon for the past 50 years. And so what we found, the native shrub habitats were more stable. You had less oscillation of those prey species, even though in the disturbed areas, you'd have a high abundance of, of ground squirrels through the ceiling, but you have a bad year and it tanks with the native shrub habitats, these oscillations weren't as abrupt. Whatever the ground squirrel does from an abundance standpoint, that's gonna reflect on how the prairie falcon does.
first fires were in September of 1981. That's Karen Steenhoff, raptor biologist and longtime research colleague of Mike Coker. And that was the beginning of, of that cycle. And in the 80s, then more and more fires all the way through 96. Most of the habitat still hasn't recovered from fires in the 1980s. I don't know if it ever will. There have been some rehabilitation efforts. Some of them have worked out, some of them not so much. Given that such a large percentage of the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA and the Great Basin region as a whole has already burned and been converted to cheatgrass-dominated annual grasslands, this question of which rehabilitation strategies work and which ones don't is extremely important. And what we've learned through a body of, of various studies is that our perennial bunch grasses are really the key line of defense against invasive annuals. The more perennial bunch grasses we have, the fewer annuals we have because they don't necessarily die in fire unless it's too hot. There might be a little bit of bare space, like I talked about it being clumpy, but it's not really bare below ground. And so if a seed was trying to get established, it would have a really hard time because there's already roots sitting right underneath the surface of that soil, taking up the moisture and nutrients that are there. When we think about a healthy, intact sagebrush steppe ecosystem, we envision a sea of sagebrush stretching as far as the eye can see. But what about these perennial bunch grasses that Jeremy mentions? Where do they fit in? Here's, that, here's your classic. Yeah. It's not a photo, but a drawing. Yeah. And that's, that's how they depict it with that, that very sparse, you see the wagons going through it. Mm -hmm. That's the size of a horse. That's Roger Rosentretter describing a drawing that shows what the Snake River Plain area looked like in the 1840s at the time of the Oregon Trail. The drawings show the sagebrush being pretty sparse. Animals had an easy time walking through it. Humans walked through it. Certain subspecies, certain species will get dense, but not all. Most mm -hmm. of them like to be very sparse right. and open. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's about 18 species in Idaho. So it's pretty complex. Mm -hmm. So if sagebrush plants were more spread out back in the 1800s, what happened? How did we end up with the dense sea of sagebrush that so many people talk about? Incredible overgrazing by sheep. The lay of the land was graze it off so nobody else can. There was a lot of that going on. A lot of these sheep operations were coming out of Utah. So we had, you know, kind of a free-for-all out there. This free-for-all sheep grazing continued across the area now known as the Snake River Birds of Prey, NCA, for many decades, starting in the mid-1800s. A lot of that greatly improved when we got the Taylor Grazing Act, and that was in, in 30, 1936, 35, 36, when it started being implemented. The Taylor Grazing Act finally set regulations on grazing and required livestock owners to pay a fee for grazing their animals on public land. But by this time, the amount of perennial grass in the Snake River Plain had already decreased significantly. And Sandberg bluegrass maybe fills in some of that niche, but actually you had bare ground a lot. And that's why exotics kept coming in, and that's why the sagebrush was probably denser than historic. But bringing native perennial bunch grasses back into the sagebrush steppe isn't just about restoring this ecosystem to what it looked like before 100 years of intensive overgrazing. It's about using these perennial grasses in the fight against cheatgrass, as Jeremy Maestas explains. 
Once they're established, those perennial plants are extremely competitive against cheatgrass. They also form the foundation of, of a ranch. That's what puts weight on livestock and that's the reliable forage base that uh, people depend on, wildlife and livestock. Perennial grasses aren't the only natural deterrent to the spread of cheatgrass, however. A component that most of range management ignores is the biological soil crust. They're organisms that grow on the soil surface, mostly non-vascular plants like mosses, lichens, fungi, uh, different kinds of bacteria, particularly uh, cyanobacteria. And uh, cyanobacteria fix nitrogen. They're some of the early colonizers of bare soil. But the characteristic of the biological soil crust most crucial to this conversation about the cheatgrass fire cycle is its ability to inhibit the germination of cheatgrass seeds. 80% inhibition of cheatgrass from germinating when you put it on top of a biological soil crust. And the lichens are pretty good, but the mosses are almost like 99% good at inhibiting germination. So if this biological soil crust is so good at inhibiting the germination of cheatgrass seeds, why is it often absent from conversations about how to best manage the sagebrush steppe ecosystem and prevent the continued spread of cheatgrass? This is partly because it's only quite recently that the first attempts at restoring biological soil crust have been made. And there's still a lot to learn before large-scale active restoration of biological soil crust could be implemented. This is a common theme across many aspects of the sagebrush steppe ecosystem. There remain a lot of unknowns. As Matt Germino, ecologist for the U.S. Geological Survey's Forest and Rangeland Ecosystem Science Center, explains. I, I would argue our knowledge and our understanding of the ecosystems is, is still developing. Like we have an incomplete knowledge. And the fact that um, despite many decades of research and management, on the fire cheatgrass cycle, we still have the problem and the problem is actually continuing to expand. That alone tells you that we don't know all that we need to know in order to tackle these, these landscapes. One of the biggest questions about the change that cheatgrass has brought to the sagebrush steppe ecosystem is focused on the fire return interval, the average amount of time between wildfires. Fire was relatively infrequent, 50 to 100 to 200 plus years before a fire would burn in some of these systems. And when we didn't have invasive species waiting in the wings, it really didn't matter how long it took for the native plants to come back. Things would just sort themselves out. Different people come up with different fire intervals for the sagebrush steppe. Well, when you look at the literature, hardcore ecologists, they come up with fire intervals like it never hardly burns, like 500, 600 years. But when you look at the agency literature, they say, oh yeah, it burns every 200 years. Or 50, I've even seen 50 years. One of the strongest arguments in support of Roger's claim that fire return intervals in low elevation sagebrush steppe habitat are really 500 to 600 years versus 50 to 200 years comes from the type of vegetation that is native to these ecosystems. In general, Wyoming sagebrush, there is not a single plant, forb, shrub, animal that's adapted to fire in that sagebrush type. So I don't think it was a significant factor. 
This question over the role of wildfire is important because it affects how these ecosystems are managed. When fire ecologists started to realize that fire suppression in forested ecosystems could actually cause much larger, more dangerous forest fires, management strategies started to shift. Now, instead of suppressing forest fires, land managers often let wildfires burn, and prescribed burns have become a key management tool. But with research on shrubland fire showing extremely long fire return intervals in the neighborhood of five to 600 years, no knowledgeable land managers are talking about setting up prescribed burns in the sagebrush steppe. However, there is a lot of confusion from a federal policy perspective about the difference between forest fire and shrubland or rangeland fire. You know, the narrative by the Forest Service is we need to restore fire, and we, we don't want to restore fire to these um, sagebrush rangelands that are invaded by cheatgrass. That's not, that's not a part, we, that's not what we want to do. Um, we're spending more and more of our resources suppressing fires over the same landscapes over and over. We don't want any more fire in there. That's the voice of Jolie Polet, the BLM Division Chief for Fire Planning and Fuels Management. We're actually burning nationally now more acres in rangeland than we are in forests. Uh, on these sagebrush dominated rangelands, uh, in the past last, less than 20 years, we've lost over 15 million acres. And in just in the last five years, almost 10 million acres of sagebrush habitats burned. And for, for a long time, forest fires did burn more in terms of acres burned, but that's changed. Now rangeland fires are really burning more acres nationally I don't know how many times I edit documents and I edit out forest fire and I put in wildfire. I do that every week. This national level bias towards forest fire over rangeland or shrubland fire goes well beyond word choice. Um, in preparedness, BLM gets, this is like the resources, the fire engines that we have available, the, the crews that we have, uh, staffing dispatch centers, you know, that are fire detection, the, those kinds of resources. We have $180 million allocated to this nationally from Congress. Forest Service has over a billion. Post-fire recovery, BLM's allocation that is $11 million annually. That's nothing. $11 million to deal with 2.1 million acres that burns, that's that five-year average, we're, we're, that's not going to cut it. Uh, we already have experienced that. The cost of restoring uh, some of these areas um, is, is kind of too high. And so we have, to, we have to focus resources and we have to get a little bit more attention on these issues. I, I really do feel like we are looking at a permanent loss of ecosystems unless we start dealing with this pretty seriously. Jolie Paulet makes it clear that a dramatic increase in the funding and resources provided to agencies for shrubland wildfire management is needed if we hope to save the sagebrush step. But there are also important policy issues that must be addressed within the BLM and other federal agencies as well if we hope to make significant progress on this issue. Rancher John Griggs explains. The thing about cheatgrass, it's green right now, and when it's green for us, it's a, it's a pretty decent forage. It's pretty high in protein content, and 
cows will do good on it and if and if we're completely honest a lot of ranchers don't mind it so bad because it's an early forage that we can get off the hay pile on and you know harvested hay is our is our biggest expense one of our biggest biggest expenses as ranchers in my opinion why it's called cheatgrass is because just when you count on it it loses that green and it turns like this cheatgrass to purple and then it's then it's of no value to us then it's not palatable cows can't and won't eat it you know cheatgrass is still a valuable forage for a short time really high nitrogen good food for for livestock it may grow green in february in this part of the country it may grow green and head out and turn before my permit even says I can be out there. In our grazing permit, the permit that we get from the Bureau of Land Management, it has hard and fast dates of when I can turn cows out and when I have to take them off. Those are, those are hard and fast dates. It, it, it's really super difficult to change. Most of my partners at the Bureau don't really want to take that on and I don't blame them. Allowing cows to forage on cheatgrass when it's green will reduce the amount of plant material on the ground and could actually help reduce the risk of wildfire. So the rigidity of the current permitting system for allowing livestock to forage on public land is widely recognized within the ranching community as a big problem. As rancher and vice president of the Nevada Cattlemen's Association, Hans Holman explains. It may turn red in April, it may turn red in June. You don't know, you just, you gotta be adaptive and you gotta be flexible. And that in itself is the core problem with terms and conditions in a permit that only give you specific dates and times. You got to have, in order to manage cheatgrass, you got to have a lot of flexibility. So how does the BLM's permitting system for grazing permits work? The details and terms of these permits are determined based on the idea that a thousand pound cow will consume 26 pounds of plant material in a given day. This is defined as one animal unit. An AUM is how many animal units per month. And originally when they set up the BLM, they went in, they monitored rangelands and they adjudicated how many head it would run. So that's an animal unit per month. And that's a stocking rate. So this allotment, they said there's X amount of acres. It has this much forage. We want to graze it to 50% utilization. We're going to let you put 500 cows or whatever that calculation was. That was the original way these allotments were adjudicated for animal units. As the ecosystems change, as they transitioned, as you see the annual invasives come in, those loading is different. And the time and timing to use those plants is different. <laughs> if you have one acre, one acre of fence ground, and you put a horse, we've all seen this, a horse in that one acre for 365 days, he will graze it to the dirt, there will be nothing left, it'll be just a dirt pad. So basically you've got 365 AUMs, or horse days of feed out of that one acre. Now you can do the same thing. You can put 365 horses in there in a dormant season at the right time and timing, put them in there for a day and get off of it, and you can actually have an ecological improvement. You will improve perennial grasses, you will improve the ecosystem. You can, you can use grazing to do things that are positive. Our fathers, our grandfathers got hung up on, well, it's animal units that matter. It's not so much animal units as it is time and timing when you want to try to manage these e ecological systems. Other countries like Australia, they, they try to limit trampling, not herbivory. 
So we're all in the U.S. We're hung up on how much you take off the grass or the forage, the biomass. You take half the biomass, that's your target usually. Most of those species are adapted for harvesting half the biomass, but they're not adapted for trampling. And they're the uh, biological soil crusts are kind of like uh, associated partners with bunch grasses. The bunch grass Bunch grasses compared to sod forming grasses, they grow in a bunch, there's open space around them. They get the deep soil moisture, but the very surface soil where seeds germinate and that are controlled by the crust. Of course, the strategies implemented for post-fire restoration are extremely important to consider as well, since this will determine which plant species come back after a wildfire. There's a lot of conflict on native perennials, non-native perennials. Can we put a green strip in? What does this do? I wouldn't say heated, I would say engage. Largely, if we're getting grass seed, Indian rice grass seed, blue bunch seed, Idaho fescue seed, that stuff's not locally adapted for the climate, the soils, the temperature, changes and fluctuations. That's the voice of Tyson Grip, a restoration coordinator for the Bureau of Land Management. We need seed sources from our local areas. So now we're finally getting around the last several years to do that. And it's a process, it takes time, but we're going there. And soon we'll have amounts of seeds that are large enough to fill these voids that we need for landscape restoration. Availability of native seed is a big issue, and it creates tension within the BLM and amongst its partners, as evidenced by this perspective shared by Chris Jasmine, ecologist for the Elko Land and Livestock Company, a subsidiary of Newmont Mining Corporation, which is one of the largest gold mining companies in the world. We do have some seeds today that do work and that are really cheap, and they're not popular because they're non-native, but they're perennial bunch grasses that we've used for 70 years here in the Great Basin that do a great job of holding these sites and keeping them from converting to cheatgrass. While many ranchers, as well as landscape restoration professionals, continue to tout the benefits of a variety of non-native plants that are commonly used in post-fire restoration efforts, many botanists, like Roger Rosentretter, remain adamantly opposed to the planting of non-native species. I think of some of these plants that we're putting out now, they're not really much better than a piece of plastic out there because you know they only have one or two class of animals that can eat it. And if they don't happen to eat it when it's green, then it's just there forever. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're not really thinking this through. Roger, along with many other ecologists and botanists, argue that we can't forget about the native animals that forage on the plants of the Great Basin ecosystem. Cows are generalists. They'll eat a wide variety of species. But many native animal species are seeking out specific chemical compounds produced by certain species and subspecies of plants. The vast majority of your insects are specialists. So a given insect, like an aroga moth, only eats sagebrush leaves. And the biggest herbivory in uh, sagebrush steppe are insects, you know, grasshoppers, all those. And those are the, in, you know, the insects that all the birds are relying on. So if insects aren't utilizing it, they're the first step in decomposition. Although insects play a more significant role in decomposition, the most well-known of these native specifists in the Great Basin 
is a bird capable of a truly bizarre vocal display. The greater sage grouse. With sage grouse, milky yellow composites are their favorites. We can spook a radio collared bird and walk over and boom, it's been eating taper tip hawkweed. And that's almost the most common food in the spring. That's what they're, they're really focused on. The greater sage grouse is a species that Jeremy Maestas has been focused on for the past 10 years. We launched this thing called the Sage Grouse Initiative and it was led by our agency there at the USDA, but it was really this conglomeration of partners across the West. This group of partners that came together to create the Sage Grouse Initiative was spurred into action by an unusual decision from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2010. The agency, when forced to determine whether the greater sage-grouse should be listed under the Endangered Species Act, announced that although the sage-grouse warranted Endangered Species Act protection, it wouldn't be listed at that time due to a lack of resources and an abundance of other candidate species in even more dire need of protection. So although it wasn't listed, the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had said that it warranted listing got ranchers all across the West worried about how a potential future listing of the species would affect their ranching practices. Uh, it really sent a shot across the bow in the West that things were going to change and we're going to have a lot of impacts for rural communities. So um, the agencies like the one I work for, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, really stepped up with the states, the governors in the West, and said, hey, we need, to, we need to solve this problem. We need to come together and figure it out. Over the course of five years, the Sage Grouse Initiative was extremely successful in bringing together a diverse group of partners working to address a variety of the conservation issues faced by the greater sage grouse. And this success was recognized in 2015 when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared that the species no longer warranted protection under the Endangered Species Act. This does not mean, however, that the decline of the sage grouse has been stopped. It means that the resources that an Endangered Species Act listing would bring to the species are already there in the form of the coalition of partners that Jeremy and so many others have been working to bring together since 2010. Just a few months before this decision about the sage grouse was handed down in 2015, an enormous megafire swept across southwest Idaho and southeast Oregon, coming very close to the boundary of the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. The Soda Fire burned close to 280,000 acres, more than half the size of the NCA itself. Matt Germino, ecologist for the U.S. Geological Survey, explains. All these people in Boise, you know, like one of the largest metro areas in the western U.S., got to observe the flames rolling over the Owyhees. And here we are, like right in view of the, one of the world's largest wildland firefighting operations. Boise, Idaho is home to the National Interagency Fire Center, our national hub for all wildland firefighting resources. And when people saw all that blackened landscape, the gut response was, do something. Secretary Jewell and um, the director of the BLM at the time, Neil Cornsey, 
I mean, they came to this landscape and they said, we need to figure out what it would take to actually bring a landscape like this back. So let's just throw, let's just go, go for it. And let's try much harder on this fire than we ever have before. I guess it's not too surprising then that the fire response was relatively intense. Um, in fact, probably will never be, never be matched by any other fire response, at least in our lifetime. A massive undertaking. Two main categories of treatments were applied to the landscape as a part of this unprecedented restoration effort. So active and passive treatments. Active being herbicides um, and seeding primarily, and then passive treatments being um, management of the livestock grazing. Active treatments included aerial seeding of sagebrush, as well as the planting of sagebrush seedlings. Tractors would pull these um, large trill seeding farming implements. Picture one tractor pulling sometimes um, three or more of these very large pieces of equipment that have discs which slice the ground and then uh, seeds are in inserted by the equipment to certain depths in the soil behind the disc. Although many welcomed the increased attention being placed on post-fire shrubland restoration, the agencies did face criticism over many of the restoration tactics that were implemented, as evidenced by this comment from Roger Rosentreder. Rather than drill seeding with our traditional rangeland drill that disturbs, say, 80% of the soil surface, these minimum till drills, which disturb maybe only 20% of the soil surface and retain a lot of biological soil crust, Matt Germino has a clear response, however, for those who criticize the approach taken on the soda fire restoration effort. The science is still very much in development. You know, so there's a lot of outstanding questions on how to best treat these landscapes. Like, what are the best restoration tools to use? And whenever you're treating a sick patient or a sick landscape, and these are sick landscapes that are affected or threatened by um, invasives and fire, um, you've got to take a risk. Germino and others involved in the soda fire restoration effort have also faced criticism for their use of non-native seed. There are no local seed sources when you have a megafire. You have to bring the seed in from elsewhere. There's a lot of areas that received non-native grasses. Um, crested wheatgrass was in some of the mixes. Many botanists, Roger Rosentreder included, bemoan the continued use of crested wheatgrass a non-native species that has been used in rangeland recovery efforts for many decades. But some of these questions about native seeds are more nuanced. Sagebrush um, is not a farmed species. The seeds must be collected from wildland um, sources. And inevitably, uh, most projects are faced with having to develop some degree of tolerance for where their sagebrush seeds are going to be um, brought in from. I mean, sagebrush is one of the most genetically diverse species um, in Western North America. It's one of the most widespread species. Um, and how does it occupy so many different sites and climates and soil conditions? The answer is that it has um, a tremendous amount of genetic diversity. 
While land managers and restoration ecologists across the West are currently engaged in efforts to source seeds as close to restoration sites as possible, Germino makes a valid point about the impossibility of planting seeds that are truly representative of the original genetic makeup of a recently burned area. Is it fair to think about um, nativeness in a binary sense? Like either you're native or you're not? Or is it more appropriate to think of nativeness as more of a gradient or um, a, a grayscale between black and white? I love this concept of nativeness as a gradient because it acknowledges the fact that these ecosystems are rapidly changing. The changes that we have observed already are about as extreme as, as one might expect to see, right? I mean, we've seen wholesale conversions of massive landscapes and millions of acres um, go from being diverse mixed perennial communities to annual grasslands. So I can't think of what's worse than that. Do we restore shrub habitats? Do we spend a lot of money trying to restore shrub habitats? And we know that's expensive and often fails. I think we need to be open to the idea that maybe we can never restore the habitat to the way it was when I came in 1977. The more I study cheatgrass, the more I think I'm gonna find something, the more depressed I get. I mean, I remember when, uh, oh, Butch Otter said something, we're gonna have a war on cheatgrass or something. And I'm thinking, well, that's gonna cost more than the war in Afghanistan, you know, uh, because, we don't really have a good handle on it. And it just, every time you think you find something, it gets worse. We're gonna be managing a modified ecosystem. Ecosystems that make up the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, as well as the Great Basin as a whole, have undergone a dramatic series of changes since European Americans began intensive sheep grazing throughout the region in the mid-1800s. These shrubland landscapes will never again look as they did before this first stage of intensive grazing began, just as they will never again look the same as they did before those first big fires in the 1980s. We stand on the precipice of a global climatic shift that will alter these landscapes in ways that are impossible to predict with a high degree of accuracy. While it may seem like the changes that we've gone through over the past several decades are extreme, they are nothing compared to what our immediate future holds. I predict in 30 years from now, we're not gonna be bad-mouthing cheatgrass. We're gonna have cereal rye. We're gonna have fentanyl grass. We're gonna have uh, ripgut brome schismus, which is a short-growing South African grass that burns, red brome, medusa head, mm -hmm. annual grasses that are worse than cheatgrass. When the first national parks were established in the late 1800s, it was thought that this special designation placed on these lands by the U.S. government would protect and preserve them into perpetuity. We now know that this is not the case. 
While there are certainly numerous actions that could be taken to mitigate the effects of the cheatgrass fire cycle by those responsible for managing the NCA, these land managers can't stop increasing temperatures, drought, and extreme weather events. And yet these are the factors that will shape the future of the Morley-Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. As we release this episode on March 26th of 2020, the U.S. government faces a crisis over the spread of a global pandemic, the coronavirus. I can't help but wonder about the parallels between this current crisis and the emerging threats posed by climate change that are on the horizon. Are federal land management agencies preparing for the largely unknown but inevitably dramatic changes that we know are coming? If a particular agency or um, political leader had made some some really shrewd moves and somehow made it so that we never had a COVID problem, would they get credit for that? Our systems are not really designed to be dealing very well at all in general with emerging like new threats. That, that's a fundamental problem with how um, our whole society is structured. So like land agencies, for example, are usually dealing a little bit more reactively to things that come up. Will our society and governments learn from this current crisis and improve their ability to respond proactively to future threats? H.R. 236, the legislation that created the NCA, states, The purposes for which the conservation area is established and shall be managed are to provide for the conservation, protection, and enhancement of raptor populations and habitats and the natural and environmental resources and values associated therewith. If we hope to continue the management of this NCA for these stated purposes, we need to address the elephant in the room, climate change. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. Today's episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production support was provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, Ragged Coyote, and Jennifer Jarrett. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, The Great Turtle, and the Idaho Songs Project. Additional audio comes from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and freesound.org. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits. <laughs>